0: You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Our topic today on Preaching Source is a historical one, Preaching During the First and Second Great Awakenings. Our guest is Dr. Tommy Kiker, who's the Associate Professor of Pastoral Ministry and the James T. Draper, Jr. Chair of Pastoral Ministry at Southwestern Seminary, where he's also the chair of our Pastoral Ministry Department and lives right across the hall from me here in in the B.H. Carroll Complex. So I see Dr. Kiker quite a bit and consult him often. And so, Dr. Kiker, thank you for letting us pick your brain today on the history of preaching during the First and Second Great Awakening.
1: Uh, this is such a great topic and always fun to talk about what God has done.
0: All right. Well, let's start by asking a general question uh, to refresh some of our listeners What were the Great Awakenings and, and what characterized these movements or movement, if you can consider them together?
1: Well, I do think there's there's a dividing line between the the awakenings, but it's just two incredible movements of God, uh, one that predates even the foundation of our, our country in, in the colonies in the early 1700s. Uh, really, I think in many ways, it extended right up to the Revolutionary War. There's always arguments over those Those dates And it seems the Revolutionary War kind of put that on pause. Some would argue that it was one continual movement, and the Revolutionary War paused that. But there seems to be a fairly distinctive uh, line there. And then after the formation of the new nation and and trying to find itself and recover from uh, just the toughness of the war that they'd been through, the Second Great Awakening uh, began to gain steam. What I love is to see the connections between the two movements. Uh, Those that were influenced by the First Great Awakening, uh, many of them were leaders, uh, in the second great awakening and in some fashion or uh, mentored the people that became the leaders. So uh, it's just really a time where it seems to be a, a loss of uh, genuine spirituality and then a renewal uh, that was not uh, just centralized in one part, but just really affected uh, what was the entire, either the colonies or the, the new nation at the time just had an incredible impact Um, in the U.S. And it it wasn't just a U.S. thing. We tend to study it from the North American side, Uh, but uh, there was a lot of activity happening across the pond as well. And especially the First Great Awakening, some of those key players uh, were overseas and here uh, in the States as well. So it's just just a great movement of God that's just really fun to study and be encouraged by, as you see what God did during those seasons of refreshing.
0: I know that you. I, I know that you, along with all of us, you. We want to give the Holy Spirit His due. Oh, that, of course. That he's He's course. the one that brings about revival. But can can you identify some some key historical, spiritual, or political, social factors that that may have been catalyst in in Uh, opening the way for these Great awakenings, Right.
1: I I think in both of these seasons you see a decline in what I would call just fervent spirituality that it became more religious, that they were just kind of going through the motions. Some of that uh, had to do, especially in the First Great Awakening with the the association with the state churches. A lot of churches were associated with the state. The the idea of the halfway covenant where men uh, that were landowners were kind of automatically brought into the membership of the church uh, just because their dad or their grandparents had been uh, uh, members of the church. So you had a lot of people that were not even saved that were uh, part of the membership of the church, and men began to just preach uh, the truth of Scripture that uh, to be part of the body of Christ, you had to be saved. It was that, that simple of, a, of a, a renewal of understanding uh, regenerate church membership and that things were saved. You, I think for America, where I've studied uh, more extensively, I did my uh, dissertation on uh, an aspect of the Second Great Awakening, but in America, there's such a transition in happening. You're, you're, you're having the colonies finding their way uh, apart from um, the, the British influence and becoming their own. Uh, you've got population growth. and and expansion uh, to where uh, many came here because of religious persecution and came here for religious reasons, but over time, uh, the way the country spread out, there was not enough of a religious influence, and so there's many areas where it's basically lawlessness and and just uh, a lot of debauchery and sinfulness, and so there's this spiritual void, and as I studied, it seems that as that void got the greatest, God decided to fill it, Uh, and he raised up uh, just great, great men and, and women in churches and institutions and organizations uh, that just became very um, passionate about the things. There's just a renewal to the word, a renewal to preaching, a renewal to call to people to uh, to come to Christ uh, outside of just that um, it was kind of an empty uh, religion that there was... There was um, just dead orthodoxy was the best that you almost had in many places, but there was just a renewal of just a vibrancy in people's walk with Christ and and really understanding what salvation was.
0: Now you spoke of of God raising up people uh, that He used in in these great awakes. Who are some of the key movers and shakers in the first Great Awakening. Well, in the first um, uh, we, would, we were talking before we
1: started recording about uh, Theodore Freelandhausen and a uh, Dutch Reformed pastor who was uh, sent by the Dutch Reformed to the Pennsylvania area had a, had a charge of about five churches uh, very quickly uh, got many perturbed at him because he actually thought people ought to be saved if they were going to be a member of the church and he he felt like they ought to study the Bible and they ought to um, and that sermons ought, ought to actually contain instructions from Scripture, and uh, they had become very used to coming to church, I guess, and just kind of hearing a little a little something to kind of get him through the week and not really being challenged. And uh, he was just a year into his ministry here, and uh, many of the uh, members of the churches that he was in charge of uh, rose up to to ask for his dismissal because he actually was um, asking them. And then, of course, in the first great awakening, you've got to mention um, Jonathan Edwards, uh, just a brilliant man. Uh, he felt like it was a wasted day if he didn't study for 13 hours preparing his sermons. Uh, what's ironic was that uh, his grandfather on his maternal, side. Uh, Solomon Stoddard uh, was one that really um, kind of left room for the halfway covenant and what was called Stoddardism, that you didn't necessarily have to be saved to be a member. He, it, and then and, and Jonathan Edwards ended up having to deal with that and caused him really to be dismissed from his church in Northampton. But probably n- no other uh, writer from that period has has been read as much as uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, many of his works are still read uh, today uh, that share about the movement of the revival, to, to defend the revival, to be able to discern whether it was genuine revival. And so he made a great impact. And then George Whitfield, probably, uh, I would say probably in our... Uh, estimations as, as Baptists, we'd probably want to listen to Whitfield uh, more than Edwards. I think Whitfield might have had a little bit more fire in the bones, not not discrediting Edwards. Obviously, God moved in many ways with his preaching, but uh, Whitfield was just a, a, a preaching machine, really. He, he traveled uh, back and forth from uh, Great Britain to the New World uh, over and over again, really exhausting himself uh, preaching. It was just incredibly popular. Uh, thousands of people would come to hear him preach and, and just had an incredible impact. The Wesleys, Charles and John Wesley. Um, and in that group, uh, Whitfield and the Wesleys, you have very diverse theological leanings between uh, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism uh, to a degree, but they were, they were in a group called the Holy Club that um, they really uh, impacted each other. So you've got some divergent theologies, but there seemed to be just a, a uniting of the main purpose, and that was just getting the gospel to as many people as possible
0: can uh, can you draw uh, some uh, comparison and contrast say between John Wesley and George uh, Whitefield
1: well you know uh, the theological leanings obviously there was a difference there but what i love about both of the the guys as you study their preaching is is they they preached thousands of times uh whitefield was more of a kind of your your uh, what we might would even consider the forerunner of the itinerant the traditional itinerant uh he w- he would preach um in, in more organized ways and probably larger crowds. Uh, one of his, his greatest uh, um – Campaigns was in the uh, 1740s. He, pre- he preached in a, a 10-week period in New England. Um, he preached over 130 times. And so in 70 days, I mean, he's preaching at least twice a day. Uh, he preached in Boston. Uh, they took the crowd outside. They had a place for him to preach inside, but it was so crowded, he preached outside in the town square. And uh, they, there was times where there would be as many as 15 20,000 is what Ben Franklin would estimate the crowds there. Ben Franklin said he had a voice that could carry for a half a mile without any amplification. Whatsoever, which I'd have loved to have heard that. I wish we had recordings from that time. But if you travel through New England, you'll go into these towns and a lot of places. There's a rock or a tree stump or something that has a plaque that says George Whitfield preached here. I mean, he just impacted that. Uh, you know, Wesley was um, he, he? He? I think he he was more uh, on the uh, on the frontier side and and but just the to me what gets me is the um, the amazing. Uh, just the, the the overwhelming number of times they preached, they worked themselves. Uh, tremendously i don't know that they would have watched any television if they were a preacher in our our culture uh, just the thousands of, of sermons and thousands of miles on horseback and that kind of thing uh, for Wesley in particular and then for Whitfield just the traveling back and forth the multiple times you know you think if I wanted to go to Great Britain today it's a you know a half a day journey for him it was you know weeks and just to do that over and over again uh, they were not lazy men they were uh, incredibly motivated and, and Driven in their preaching, obviously with some theological differences, but um, just preaching tirelessly.
0: Yeah, I, I believe it was Whitfield that uh, Benjamin Franklin gives mm-hmm. an account of having heard and, yeah. and was uh, impressed with him. All right, uh, we've talked a lot about the first Great Awakening. Let's move on. Second Great Awakening. We're we're into the 19th century now, aren't we?
1: Yes, sir. Well, you, you're at the turn of the century there. After the Revolutionary War, you've got the nation uh, trying to find itself, fledgling. Um, obviously, the war itself had a great impact on uh, on the nation, on the geographical region, and what became the United States of America. Uh, but also, you had the um, the help we received from the French. There was some influence there. A lot of people uh, bought into the idea of skepticism. Uh, John Locke, Thomas Paine, that, that that the age of reason and those kind of things. Uh, a doubt of God. Um, many of our educational institutions, Yale and and other uh, colleges, uh, make note that in their you know colleges that were established for religious purposes had very few believers. Uh, there was um, one account of all the students at Yale, there was only eight believers and those were ridiculed. Hampton, Sydney, a college in Virginia that was established for uh, training of ministers. Uh, there was a group of four uh, guys that were, had gotten saved and were having a Bible study and they were just uh, harassed and, and hazed. And finally the president uh, who had been influenced by the first great awakening, he said, no, they're not going to treat you that way. You can have your Bible study uh, in my parlor in his office area. And uh, Revival just broke out in your college areas, um, Hampton, Sydney, Asbury, um, Yale, where Timothy Dwight, Jonathan Edwards' grandson, uh, was there. See, see so many connections between the first and the second. The second didn't have the Whitfields and the and the Edwards and the Wesleys at the early stages. It was more of a a broader movement, not so many individuals. Uh, a lot of the college campuses, the local churches in, in um New England saw a, a great uh movement of god but not with the that that spearhead leader in the same way um and in the south you've got the rise of of the baptist denomination the sandy creek uh influence and that kind of thing just begins to really uh make some impact there in the awakening um what I, I, I'd i be amiss uh, to not mention Samuel, Samuel J. Mills Jr. was my uh, subject of my dissertation, and uh, he was the leader of a movement called the Haystack Prayer Revival at uh, Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. A group of uh, men would meet every Tuesday and, and Saturday to pray for missions, and in one of those prayer meetings, a storm came up, and they sought refuge under a, a haystack, which is a little different than how we do hay uh, today, but there was a place where they could get out of the rain, and they prayed, and uh, it's noted that out of that prayer meeting, uh, the birth of American Foreign Missions was born, and they went to the, uh, eventually went to the congregational leaders, and, had, and they formed the first mission sending agency, and, and uh, then a few years later, they sent off the first missionaries, which included uh, Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice, and so we can even trace. So you have a, a, a great birth of missions. On the preaching side, really, probably the prominent preachers, uh, the one that most people would know is Charles Finney, but he was towards the latter end of the Second Great Awakening. And sometimes you even would include uh, Deal Moody, but that kind of, uh, many would argue that was a different movement. He kind of leaked into another movement after uh, the Second Great Awakening. But uh, just a lot of institutions were formed, a lot of educational institutions, mission societies, uh, the American Bible Society. Um just a lot of of uh, the temperance society, alcohol was a big deal. Slavery became uh, obviously began to to be a, a topic of attention, and and many were looking for an answer for for that. They knew it was wrong, and something had to happen. Uh, Mills was instrumental in a uh, society called the American Colonization Society, which hoped to uh, win slaves to to Christ, have them freed, and then. Uh, reestablished them in Liberia. Uh, basically, his vision was missionary work. And so there's, there was obviously a rise against uh, that institution as well. But just um, a lot of neat things happened, not the prominent leaders that we saw in the First Great Awakening, but more of a broad movement.
0: Um, anything in particular in, in terms of, of the development of preaching uh, d- during this time, or the, the theological institutions and homiletics are preaching, but what, what's happening during these uh, awakenings, sure, and, sure. and how is preaching changing, or the teaching of preaching? I think
1: um, one thing interesting in the first Great Awakening was you had William Tennant, who established what was kind of, um, in a mocking way, called the Log uh, College. He was training his sons and about 15 other guys, um, really kind of a precursor to the modern-day seminary. And 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 really, um, the Log College that became uh, the College of New Jersey and eventually became Princeton. It's kind of the, the birth of Princeton. And and so um, you have the, the establishment of uh, religious education and In college campuses, Uh, really, one thing that that you see there is just um, the purpose of education was mainly uh, to train people for ministry of all the different colleges and and those types of things. um, It it was the focus was to to get the gospel. Um, One stat I saw in some of my reading, just thinking through some of these things, that I knew that was a big deal is in 1780 there were nine schools of higher education in America, and by 1861, by the end of the um, of the revival there was 182. So from nine to 182, all but 27 were founded by different Christian denominations. So some of the States had established some schools, but most of our education was, uh, was there for um, the training of ministers. Uh, Neat thing in the second great awakening is what we have the camp meetings. Uh, This was kind of a continuation of some of the stuff I believe that happened in the first great awakening. For some reason, this idea idea that it was just ungodly to preach outside (laughs) and uh, Whitfield really out of just necessity uh, took some of his meetings outside. And then um, the second great awakening in, in Kentucky and, and some of that area, particularly, you saw these count meetings where just thousands and thousands came. And, um, you know, there was some things that were probably some extremes there, but really a great movement. And then um, on the Methodist side, kind of influenced by Wesley and then uh, by As- Asbury, uh, just the circuit riding Methodist preacher. Uh, if you read anything about the preaching of the of the awakenings, uh, the Methodist preachers had this reputation that they were everywhere. Uh, there was one saying that. Um, if it, was, if it was bad weather outside, you say that t- today is good for nothing. All you can see is crows and Methodist preachers. You know, they're just they're just everywhere. And one writer said that he he was in Kentucky, and he never found a family whose cabin had not been visited by a Methodist circuit-riding preacher. Uh, Asbury himself was kind of the forerunner of that in the First Great Awakening, and it became more prominent in the Second Great Awakening. They say by the time of his death, he had ridden over 275,000 miles on horseback, uh, and had preached some 16,500 times, ordained some 4,000 preachers. And so just a lot. Life poured out, so that that idea of the itinerant ministry, the outdoor preaching, um, but in both awakenings there was a renewal uh, from just dry orthodoxy, dead orthodoxy, to really a, an intimate relationship with the Lord through the preaching of His Word. Um, they were just going through the motions in many ways, and so there was this renewal of that. This is not just something we just do. Uh,
0: this is this the preaching of this Word changes our lives. The uh, the culture and society, the the environment uh, that they preached in, and and modern day, uh, the, there seem to be such stark differences. What are there lessons that you think we can, those of us preaching in the twenty first century, could draw from those open air preachers and circuit riding preachers?
1: Well, I think you know one thing I was thinking about as I was I was thinking through this thing is is um. I just I think we've lost the um, the importance of just hard labor, hard work, and the study. And in the, deliver, in the delivery of sermons, um, you know, there's some things in the life of Wesley and Whitfield that if I was in my pastoral ministry class, I would not uh, call my guys to emulate, you know, in, in some of the ways that they handled their, their, their ministry to their family. Uh, but I'm afraid in some ways we've almost swung too far to the other side where we use our family as an excuse not to, to do the hard work, to do the labor, to pour ourselves out in the study, uh, to pour ourselves out in the, um, the preaching of the word. Uh, I... I um, we talk a lot about guys burning out, and that's something we really need to uh, to be aware of. But I, I look at Whitfield and Wesley, and I'm thinking most guys they, they they wouldn't have they wouldn't have survived this. A lot of guys would not have um, made that schedule. And the reality is, most of us are not Whitfields and Wesleys. But I think what one thing that encourages me is just uh, their passion and their burden and their urgency that. Um, the word had to be preached. The gospel had to be shared. Uh, there was not much time for anything that did not advance the gospel. You know, Both of them were involved in, in social ministries, uh, orphanages and, and, and those kind of things, other movements, but it was always for the advance of the gospel. And I, I found that incredibly encouraging. They, they labored tirelessly, um, in, and, and we need to regain some of that urgency, I believe, in our day and time.
0: Now, we've spoken already about the evangelistic preaching of Charles Finney, but uh, you've also done some work on another character of that time, uh, Asahel Nettleton. Sure, sure. Uh, Talk to us about... Uh, about some of his work and and maybe how he compares to Finney or not.
1: Nettleton felt called to missions, but had some health issues, and he was never really able to. And he's kind of known as you study him, if you if you just see some of the precursors, some of the some of the surface stuff, um, is one that opposed Finney. He was he was he was he was very Calvinistically lean and very reformed, um, but very evangelistic. I mean, he he was credited with some twenty five thousand people coming to Christ under his preaching. He 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 shared the gospel, drawed people to respond. Uh, I don't think he had any personal vendetta against Finney as I I study it. I think he was just concerned, um, and maybe not even so much with Uh, with Finney as he, as where he thought maybe some of Finney's um, ideas might go, the new measures and the, the anxious bench and the anxious meeting. Um, I don't know if it was Nettleton or not, but one of the main concerns that, that a lot of the pastors had against Finney was that he would allow women to pray in public, which uh, was unheard of then, which, you know, that's, we can talk about that in another, another uh, interview or something. But um, I, I, I think Nettleton is sometimes unfairly seen as just the antagonistic against Finney and didn't own, you know, and was, uh, but he, he was incredibly evangelistic himself. Uh, he, he just had some, I think they, they just crossed some paths in a way where, uh, it raised some concerns and it might just be a lesson that sometimes we just get distracted. Um, but I, I, I think he's he's incredibly worthy of study and had a great impact. Um, one gave an account that when they they, um, they had brought some charges against Finney, Nettleton was there, one of the ministers that was on the charging side, and and they said that Nettleton just looked old and tired and Finney looked uh, young and robust, but they were only about seven years different in age, and, and it seemed like maybe he had gotten distracted to some degree. Uh, obviously, there's some places where some of the things that, that Finney, um, you know, where it got to at some points would raise concerns with some of us. But um, the new measures themselves, uh, I think most of us have probably done some of those to some degree or another, the protracted meeting. And uh, what I love about Finney was just his, um, his emphasis on prayer. Uh, he had a guy that would go around to the towns he was preaching in that would pray weeks before he even got there, organize prayer meetings. And Finney would not step into the town to do a meeting until he knew knew it had been prayed over. And there had there were some times when he got there, things seemed dry. He'd call his prayer guy back in and say, hey, no, we need to keep praying. This place is not ready yet. And so God's hand was on it. Well, I
0: tell you, if, I mean, if uh, of all the things you've said, if there's anything that'd be a lesson for us today, mm-hmm. I, I think that would be—why don't we close out with that? Sure. What, uh, that's, a, that's a great— Contemporary lesson: What in looking back over the first and great, uh, first and second uh, great awakenings? I mean, what what do you think? are the lessons that <laughs> yeah. we could draw that, that to say, hey, let's let's do that again and invite God to mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. rend the heavens and come down.
1: Well, when, when, I, when you look at it, there's a spiritual void, which creates a spiritual desperateness. And it, it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but it's absolutely true. There was a renewal of prayer and a renewal of the preaching of the Word of God and just the recognition that the way that things were happening was not getting the job done. And, and in the first great awakening, the second great awakening, um... just just an emphasis that we need Jesus we need this to be different um the, the spiritual void had developed and there's just this urgency and this desperateness uh, to turn to God. And so you see these movements of prayer uh, that raise up, you know, you talk about Jonathan Edwards in the First Great Awakening. Uh, he'd spend several days a week just fasting and praying in a study while he's studying. I mean, there was, there's, there's not a movement that you read about in, in the First and Great Awakening that did not involve just a, a clear call back to prayer and then an emphasis on the truth of the scripture. Uh, not a dry orthodoxy, a dead orthodoxy, or a deviant orthodoxy, but the truth of the Scripture uh, with passion. Uh, And I think that these are simple answers, but they are still the simple truth is that we need to have a desperateness for
0: the movement of God. Our guest on Preaching Source today has been Dr. Tommy Kiker, Chair of the Pastoral Ministry Department at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Tommy, thank you for being with us today.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you.